Turn to the book of Revelation, please, chapter, chapter 1. Book of Revelation. Last book of the Bible encourages us that the best is yet to come. Our hearts cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But as he reveals himself to the aged and last living apostle, John, in chapter 1, he reminds John to tell the church that he is the Alpha and the Omega, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. What he's saying is, I'm from before the beginning and I'm after the end. I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. This is the Son of Man. This is Jesus Christ. And on him we set all of our hopes. As the book unfolds, it starts off with seven letters to seven churches, but the first letter uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 is written to the church at Ephesus, a church that Paul had visited. He had never been to the town of Colossae, but Ephesus was fairly nearby, and he visited there on his second and third missionary journey. Apparently, a young man by the name of Epaphras was saved at the church in Ephesus while Paul was, was teaching there. And I think it's instructive uh, to hear what God had to say about this church at Ephesus because it sounds remarkably like this church. And I would like you to just consider this as a letter, a very brief letter written by Jesus to you. We are that church at Ephesus, I think, in part. Let's look at what it says in verse 1. To the angel, the overseer, the pastor of the church, the one who brings the message, literally, to the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says, I walk amongst my church, in and out of the pews. I search every heart, and I hold your very pastors right there in the palm of my hand. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Ephesus was a good church. Paul, in establishing that, had exercised such spiritual fatherhood and, and shepherdship over that church. But Jesus, now a number of years later, has to write them and says, I know your deeds, and here, this is to your credit. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, but that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You've got good doctrine. You are well taught. You know the Word of God. You use it effectively against false pastors and prophets and, and teachers among you. You have persevered, verse 3, and have endured hardships in my name, and you have not grown weary. You didn't throw in the towel. And Jesus wants you to know he's proud of you. Your orthodoxy is good. The practice of your faith is good. Your hard work has been noted. He knows your deeds. More than that, he knows your heart. But right orthodoxy is not enough. Look at what he says next, because I believe that it may be for the church of Ephesus that resides here in Colorado Springs. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken 
your first love? What should be our first love? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What gets in the way of our first love? Busyness. Write this down. Busyness always leads to laziness, spiritually speaking. It always leads to lukewarmness. Busyness will consume you and run you like sausage through a meat grinder. That's what Satan wants. You're so busy, so caught up, so... And we live in such a day of entertainment that even if you had nothing to do, all you've got to do is turn on the television and watch 1,100 channels of somebody blathering about this or that on TV. We are consumed by these things, so much so that we've accepted it as normal. The problem is it can potentially have you forsaking your first love. In the last 33 years, the most consistent complaint I've heard out of Christians is, boy, I'd like to read more and pray more and share my faith more and go to church more, but you know, I'm just so busy. I'm just so busy. If you're too busy for God, you're too busy, period. It demands reassessment of your priorities, the things that captivate our heart, that hold our attentions, the entertainments that vie for our attention, we've got to pay attention to these things. You have forsaken your first love, but Jesus has an antidote for that in verse 5. <coughs> Excuse me. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember the early days when you first accepted Jesus. You were, your hair was on fire and you were doing mock too and reading and praying and singing louder than anybody in the church. And what happened? What happened? We traded our zeal for knowledge? I don't want you to be the most knowledgeable church in Colorado Springs. I want you to be the most loving and godly. Knowledge the Pharisees possessed, and they crucified the Son of Man when He came, according to prophecy. They should have anticipated His coming, but out of jealousy, they decided they would rather kill Him. Do away with the competition. Remember the height from which you have fallen. In other words, if you have ever been closer to the Lord Jesus Christ than you are this morning, you need to repent. You need to go back to that place where you first met Jesus and fall in love with Him all over again. We had a, a, a marriage renewal, a 25-year recommitment marriage here in the, in the church yesterday, and it was glorious. It was glorious, and the Lord had prompted my heart, I want you to have everybody else in the entire congregation join hands and recommit themselves to each other as well. An occasional recommitment is appropriate. Would you agree? It's the same way with the Lord Jesus Christ. Communion is for me that recommitment. It's that remembrance of who He is, what He did for me. His body which was broken, His blood which was shed, so that my sins might be washed away. But the church at Ephesus had forgotten that, oh, they had right doctrine. They had traditional orthodoxy. They were a good church. They were hardworking. But Jesus, looking inside, said, where's the love? You've got the orthodoxy. You've got the service. You got, you're doing a lot of things right, and He commends them for that. But he says, repent and do the first things you did. If you do not repent, in other words, if you don't change, if you don't come back to your first love, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. <coughs> Excuse me. What Jesus said is, if you refuse to kindle into full flame the embers of the Holy Spirit within you, I'll move on to somebody else who will. God wants to use you and I, but He wants people that are Spirit-filled, that are humble, that are gentle, that are loving, that are kind. That kind of church will impact this town. That kind of church prays effectively. It's His love that binds us together. It's, it's not the songs that we sing. It's not the orthodoxy that we cling to, as important as it is. But what stands out to me is if you go to Ephesus today, there's not a single living human being there. It's an archaeological ruin. Nobody lives there. Tourists come and go to look at the place and look at the grandeur of what it used to be. They don't haven't even identified the church that existed there in Ephesus. We don't have any idea where it's at. It's not there anymore. What happened? Jesus removed that lampstand from its place. Apparently, they did not repent. They did not get back in touch with their first love. I just encourage you because... What happened in the early days of Ephesus is Paul came there, preached the gospel. People got saved, Jews and Gentiles alike. This guy Epaphras goes, man, i got to take this message back home to Colossae. And he took it back, and all of a sudden, he, he shares with his family, and apparently they get saved, and next-door neighbors get saved, and friends and co-workers get saved, and he's got this thriving little home fellowship church to which this letter of Colossae was written. If we could turn to Colossians chapter 3 then, I will leave it at that. Out of Ephesus came this little church plant at Colossae. He has outlined for us in Colossians 1 and 2 all that God has done for us. He had a chance to write this epistle because he was waiting for his trial to come up. He was imprisoned under house arrest in Rome awaiting his trial to be brought before Nero. His accusers never came, but he sat there in that rented house chained to Roman legionary troops for two entire years. And so he thought, well, I've got time on my hands now. God has delivered me from my busyness, my busyness even in the ministry. I've got time. I can, I can sit down and write these guys a letter. I've never been to the church but I know Epaphras, he's a solid guy. He came from the church at Ephesus, so let me encourage them to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. False teachers had infiltrated the church, and in the first two chapters, Paul points them out and says, avoid these guys who deprecate the deity of Jesus Christ. Stay away from them, this Gnostic heresy that was in its seedling form at the time, combined with some sort of Jewish mysticism and harsh living conditions. Oh, we don't do this, we don't do that, we don't taste and touch this, you know, and, and it led to a holier-than-thou attitude. That doesn't bless anybody, and it's a, the complete opposite of the spirit of love. Never brag on yourself or your spirituality or who you know, or how much money you have. Let him who boasts, boast in who? The Lord. And yet the church at Ephesus had gotten that wrong. I just don't want us to have that in common with the church at Ephesus, because out of that great church was born this small home fellowship that was nowhere near the size of the congregation we've got here this morning. 
We have come to expect the megachurch as being the successful model of what God's plan is these last days. Nothing could be further from the truth. Did you know in America the average church size is 100, or excuse me, is 91 men, women, and children? That's the average church size in America. Well, what's the average Calvary Chapel size? Oh, we're bigger and better, and we got orthodoxy, and we're just like Ephesus, right? Yeah, 101 men, women, and children is the average size of the Calvary Chapel. The super church, the mega church, is a myth. You don't really see one in scriptures, but we have built them today, and praise God in heaven for the souls that are saved. I think that is glorious. But understand this, smaller churches tend to be more personal, more intimate. It's family. We got Jesus in our midst. We love each other. We talk to each other. We, we get in each other's lives. You, people go to a mega church that they don't have to do any of that. They can keep their sin, sit in a service, go home feeling somewhat placated. But nobody knows if they're there or not. Nobody cares if they're there or not. They sing their songs. They hear their sermon. They go home. And there is no relationship. There is no family. There is no love. No love. It is not our orthodoxy that binds us together. It is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ poured out upon us, forgiving us our sins, and then filling us with His Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Love. Everything else flows out of that. So, dear friends, if we don't get anything else right in this life, get love right. Don't swap it for orthodoxy, your Bible knowledge, or things that you can brag on and tell people about how smart you are, how long you've been a Christian. <laughs> Paul had been walking with the Lord a good while. And after telling us how high and lofty and lifted up the Son of Man is and what he did for us, disarming the, the demonic forces that are opposed to us, in chapter 3 he now starts what you might call the practical section of the letter. First two chapters, this is everything God's done for you. Now, here's your responsibility in light of that. We tend to say, yep, thank you, Jesus. You want me to do something? I think not. But doesn't every relationship have some give and take to it? Marriage certainly does. Suppose you walk the aisle and you got married and then you never talk to your spouse again, ever. What kind of relationship is that? But sometimes people say, well, I got saved when I was a youngster. I'm good with God. Prayed the prayer. Read my Bible once in a while. Is there more? Is there more? So what he outlines for us here beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1 is our part. God has done his part in all of Paul's writings. His first Emphasis is always on what God has done first. And then he ends up the second half of the book with what our responsibility is in light of what God has done for us. But it always it's God first. God is the initiator. You and I are the respondents. That's all. But understand who started this thing. It's God. What's he want? You. Not your stuff. He wants you. All of you, heart, mind, soul, body, he wants you, all of you. So he's going to tell us how we can arrive at that place. Chapter 3 outlines our responsibility in light of our position, and consistently that is, is the case. 
Understand here, starting in chapter 3, God will not do what he asks us to do for ourselves. Chapters 1 and 2, God's already done his part. Chapters 3 and 4, this is what our part is, but God will not do this part for us. It's what he asks us to do. So I outline this as personal responsibility. He has done his part. We must do ours. And do it by the power of his Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6 is kind of one of the backbone chapters of Calvary Chapels worldwide. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The church at Ephesus had forgotten that. I wonder if the church that was born out of Ephesus, Colossae, I wonder if they hadn't forgotten just a little bit of that as well. This is a spiritual journey we're on. This ain't going to church. Church can't save you. Church can't make you good. Church can't change you unless you choose to apply some of the truths that are shared with you. I can't change you. God won't change you. But you can put yourself in the presence of a God who will change you if you submit and surrender afresh. How often do you think you need to do that? Yeah, about every second. Every second. Live in, live in surrender, totally. Talk to Him constantly. The Bible says pray without ceasing. What's that mean? Talk to the one who died for you. Tell Him how much you love Him and appreciate Him. And when we do our acts of service, when we do what we are commanded to do in chapters 3 and 4, we will do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it's religion and you will resent it. You'll resent it. You want this to be a spiritual journey, led by the spiritual shepherd of our souls. <coughs> Excuse me. We had covered the opening verses, the four verses that opened up chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things or entertainments or objects, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. There is a war that rages for your attentions. The war is for the mind. The war is for the heart. The heart is what the things that you attach yourself to, your passions, your drive, the things that get you up out of bed in the morning. Set your minds on spiritual things, not on earthly things. That's the biggest struggle the church has today. There's too much TV, too much entertainment, too much media, too much Facebook or Instagram, or who knows what's next on the horizon. I can barely keep up. What iteration of iPhone is out now? And where, where do they stop? iPhone 250? When does it stop? When do you have to stop buying a new set of software updates for your computer because Bill Gates decided he'd like to hold you ransom for more? I liked XP. I mean, that's a you know 20-year-old program, but and it worked great for me, but they force you to buy more, buy more, buy more. Set your minds, church, on things above, not on earthly things. Here's why. Verse 3, for you died. You walk in Jesus' footsteps, you died. It's not about you anymore. It's not about cell phones or computers or technologies or what you drive or the clothes you wear, or the name brands that are on your shoes. Those things sound so trivial in light of God's Word. They are things of the earth. 
Our hearts should not be attached to such things. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a glorious opener to, to the chapter that is before us. Now our responsibility. Starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Whatever things still tie you to this world, tie your heart to this world, and tie your mind to this world. Put those things to death. Nail them to the cross. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your fleshly, your earthly nature. Such things like sexual immorality. It translates the Greek word pornea, where we get the word pornography. Impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. I want to pause right there. When it says put to death, it's in the active voice in the original language, which means you and only you can do this. You must put to death these things in your life. I can't do it for you. God won't do it for you. He's given you His Holy Spirit. You have the spiritual resources to obey these commands. They are Greek imperatives. They're not suggestions. They're commands. Put to death. You and I must do this. And only you can do this. It's necessary to put sins to death because if you do not put to death the sin in your life, your sin will kill you. Kill it first. You don't want to live a defeated Christian life. There's no joy in that place. There's no security in that place. There's no love or joy or peace or patience in any of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul would write the church at Rome and put it this way, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit, there's the priority, by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. You are a child of God. Act like it. If you're tempted to do wrong, you put that to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. You get in the Word of God. You ask for His strength. In a moment of temptation, share your faith. <laughs> put off the TV or turn off the computer. The problem with the Christian life is that I have a redeemed spirit dwelling in an unredeemed body. And so you can feel the tension sometimes between your flesh and the Spirit. And Paul is commanding us, do what's right. Since then, put to death. Therefore, there, why, why is the therefore, what's it there for? Always ask that. Because of the first four verses, because of all that Jesus has done for us, because we've set our hearts on things above, because we've set our minds on things above, therefore, whatever belongs to our earthly nature needs to be put to death. Therefore, we have an obligation now to a new master, Jesus. We used to serve the old master, which was the flesh and Satan. He's described in Scripture three times by Jesus himself as the God of this world. That's why you can't attach your heart to the things of this world. You can't attach your passions to the things of this world because ultimately that source is Satan. 
Why would you want to serve Satan in any capacity when you are a child of God? Now we serve God Almighty. We serve holiness by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. We are the sons and daughters of God. But have you noticed that your sons and daughters when you were growing up, in fact, when you were growing up in your parents' household, have you noticed that children always have chores? Huh. Sons and daughters have chores. You know the ritual. Take out the trash, Dad would say. Clean your room, Mom would say. Those are Greek imperatives. They weren't suggesting you take out the trash. They weren't suggesting you clean your room. It was, to use the Greek phraseology, it was an imperative command. You, you singularly, you by yourself, you take out the trash. And you, pointing to another child, you go clean your room. Those are imperatives. They are expected to be obeyed by your parents. Mow the lawn. Do it with joy or God will replace you with somebody that will do it with joy. All of ministry can be summed up in that one word, chore. It is a responsibility and a privilege that God has given each one of his children. But when he tells you to take out the trash, he doesn't expect lip service. He actually expects you to do it. You, by the way, have that privilege in, in this church. You need no one's permission to empty a full waste paper basket. Dumpsters right out back, get the key from Tracy. You can do that. Doesn't require a college degree or education. You can help out in Sunday school. There is no spiritual gift of changing diapers. But it is a need sometimes. So sometimes servants just exist to meet a need. And they don't grumble or they don't complain. If they do, they will be replaced with somebody who can do it in the power of the Holy Spirit with joy. Don't, God doesn't want any grumbling servants didn't Nehemiah say, the joy of the Lord will be your strength? Ah, do it as unto the Lord, verse 23 will later on tell us. Uh, we may be sons and daughters, for sure, in the family of God, but sometimes we tend to be more like bratty teenagers than we realize. We only want to do what we want to do, as opposed to what needs to be done. I'm in my quiet time. One of my readings is in the Old Testament prophet Haggai, who was a 70-year-old man who only spoke and ministered for about four months, encouraging the people to do the inglorious work in and around the temple. Some of these Levites, oh, they wanted to minister inside the temple. They wanted to do the important stuff where people's eyes were on them. But somebody had to go out and pick weeds. And some of the Levites said, oh, we don't want to pick weeds. Let's hire somebody to do that. Levites are called into service to serve, to serve. The people, had, they had neglected the house of the Lord for 10 years. And so God raised up Haggai to remind them there is work that needs to be done in the house of the Lord. There is work that needs to be done on the house of the Lord and around the house of the Lord. It is all the Lord's work. 
Thus, it shouldn't be despised by anybody. They had neglected the house of God. They had set the foundation in place and then decided, now we're going to build for ourselves paneled homes and recreational spots. We're going to take care of us first. We'll get get around to taking care of the house of God. Meanwhile, it was falling into disrepair. But they did had plenty of time for doing stuff that they wanted to do. And sometimes God's just looking for somebody who will do the mundane and ordinary things, but do it with joy and do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how to serve. What stands out to me is where Paul says that some of these things constitute idolatry. Put to death, verse 5 says, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, desires, and greed, which is idolatry. All of these things previously mentioned are idolatry. In other words, literally, it's image worship. It's what you can see. In fact, translated into Latin, idolo in the Greek is pronounced video. Do you have a problem with the things that your eyes fall upon today? Phones, TVs, computers? Is there any image worship that goes on in the hearts and minds of Christians? In Latin, video means worship of that which can be seen. Worship of that which can be seen. Those kind of people are impressed with brand names and they try to make themselves the center of attraction wherever they go. All eyes on me, look at my outfit, look at, look at what I'm wearing, look at the brand of car that I drive. Never worship the things that can be seen, please. Don't worship those things. Search your heart even right now. And if those things of this world have a hook in your heart, renounce that in Jesus' name. Ask the Holy Spirit of God to take that out of your heart and give you a loathing for that thing which attaches you to a sinful fallen world ruled by Satan. These Gnostics that had come into the church of Colossae said, well, what has been redeemed is your soul, your spirit. You can't see that. So it doesn't really matter what you do with the outside. So you can dress like a harlot. You can trip and stumble other people by, by your appearance and how you dress, drawing attention to yourself or by what you drive or what you brag on about yourself or what you have or have attained. Paul says, rid yourself of all of these things. Because verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, will appear with him in glory, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I will put these things to death. There's a lot of idolatry going on out there today. In fact, it's, it, it's not even under wraps anymore. You got TV show, shows called America's Idol. Excuse me? Somebody ought to say, I think you ought to reword the name of that show. Maybe the hottest singer around or whatever, but idol is a word that you and I should kind of shun. The things that we see, verse 6 explains why. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Read Revelation 6 through 19 to see it poured out in its fullness and In the very, very last of the last days. You used to, verse 7, walk in these ways. 
in the life you once lived. That was you. That's not you anymore, so stop doing that. You used to be obsessed with all of the things of the flesh and of this world. Stop doing that. Don't do that anymore. Those are the things that will perish. When we stand before Jesus, they won't be there. So don't be obsessed with them now. Verse 8, but now you, ooh, not me, I can't do it for you. But this is an imperative command to each one of us. Here's the problem. I fear that most of you are going to walk out of here this morning not having made a commitment to do any of these things. Know that that grieves the heart of God. The church at us of Ephesus was in Revelation warned, if you don't get your act together, I'll replace you with somebody who will. I want to be used by the Lord these last days. I want to draw close to Him these last days. I want to be spirit-filled these last days. But Jesus said, if you continue in your lukewarmness to the church at Laodicea, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. I don't want to be lukewarm. I'd rather be dead. So he commands us again, imperative commands, rid yourselves. It's in the middle voice. I must do this. Now you yourselves must rid yourselves. It's a command of all such things as these. Anger. Every man in this room, I just stepped on your toes. Men struggle with anger. Sometimes we justify it by saying, you need to feed me, woman. It's hangry. That's different. That's not what Jesus is talking about. You just need to feed me. Get rid of all such things as these anger, rage, malice. That's doing things wrong or thinking things that are wrong. Slander. You say, well, it's not slander if it's true. It's slander if it deprecates another human being. If your intent is to talk badly about somebody else, whether it's true or false, is irrelevant. You have chosen to slander. Know this, that's from the pit of hell. Don't do it. If you're guilty of slander, you need to repent of that mightily. That's not a minor sin to be tolerated. You say, well, it's not one of the seven mortal sins versus the seven venial sins. There is no venial sin in Scripture. They're all sins. How many sins can keep you out of the kingdom of heaven unrepented of? Just one. Just one. You may have slandered plenty of people prior to your coming to Christ, but if you are a Christian this morning, you must not slander a man, a woman, a church, a boss, somebody who's too slow at the drive-up window at McDonald's. You can't do that. Christ didn't. You must not either. And filthy language. If you have a problem with cussing, understand that you should have dropped that about 30 seconds into your salvation. If you still let that kind of garbage come out of your mouth, how do you ever hope to glorify God when people hear what comes out of your mouth and go, oh, crud, if that's a Christian, I don't want any part of that at all. 
You can trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ by the foul things that come out of your mouth. Don't do that. Don't laugh at the world's dirty jokes. Don't watch inappropriate things on your computer or on TV. Hold yourself accountable to these things. And when the pagans at work tell you, hey, I thought you were the Christian. I heard this come out of your mouth or that. Here's a good suggestion. Follow me on this. You tell that pagan, you're right. I shouldn't be cussing or laughing at dirty jokes. So I'll tell you what. Anytime in the future you hear that garbage coming out of my mouth or me laughing at something that came out of the sewer, would you please in Jesus' name hold me accountable? The pagans will hold you accountable. You'll be in places where I am not, so I can't hold you accountable. Church members may not be around. But if you ask the pagan that just confronted you with Christian inconsistency, then get enlist their aid to hold you accountable. I went to lunch one time with a pastor, and he was sitting across me, and every time a waitress came up from behind me, he was eyeball raping her. This was a pastor in a well-known church in Colorado Springs. After watching him do this five or six times, I finally, I, I just couldn't deal with that anymore. I said, brother, do you struggle with lust? Well, me? Oh, no, I'm a pastor. I, I'm, no, I don't struggle with lust. I said, then why are you eyeball raping every waitress that comes up from behind me and you give her the once up and down? Don't you think other people are watching you? Suppose there's people from your congregation here watching you lustfully look at another woman. What would your wife think if she were sitting next to you? You need to repent of that. And I never saw or heard from that man again, ever. Most people don't like correction. Most people need correction. But most people fluff up against it. They get irritated. They get mad. Well, who do you think you are to judge me, man? I'm not your judge. I'm just pointing out to you the inconsistencies that may stumble other people. And my Bible says don't stumble anybody. So, guys... Be careful where you let your eyes roam. Enlist the aid if, of your wife. I mean, just, honey, just tell your wife this sometime. Tell her today. Honey, I want you to slap me if we're walking through Walmart and I look at anybody inappropriately. You're going to hear that sound all over Walmart. All over Walmart. And maybe men will stop doing that. Maybe men will stop doing that. Men generally will look most at women who dress the most inappropriately. So ladies, don't dress inappropriately. Don't stumble other people. It's not about you. Oh, I like it when people look at me like that. You know, you probably just need to wear baggier clothes. You want to show up in heaven one day saying, hey, I wore my tight shirt so I could pull it up there so I could show people my muscles, you know, really? Get a looser shirt. Or I'm amply endowed up above so I wear skin-tight tops. Wear looser clothes. You represent the name of Jesus Christ. Dress appropriately, modestly. 
Some of this stuff is so common sense, nobody's ever brought it to your attention. You may have never heard stuff like this in a sermon. But the bottom line is, I'm tired of Christians, be they male or female, lusting and looking at inappropriate things and thinking there's nothing to it. I can cuss. I can laugh at dirty jokes. I can look at members of the opposite sex up and down. I can have lustful thoughts. I'm still okay. No, you're not. You're not. We need to say that that's not okay. But I'm so impressed in in verse 8 where it says, we have to rid ourselves of these things. You must rid yourselves of all of these things. Verse 9, don't lie to each other. Have you noticed there is, the word white lie is not mentioned in Scripture? But we've invented that so we can lie a little bit and think it's okay. What's well, just a white lie? A lie is a lie. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self, your old nature with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, the intimacy, in the image of its creator. Don't lie. Why is that so serious? Because it's opposed to and is the absolute opposite of the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We are to be men and women of truth. It says in Hebrews 6, 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered in us may be greatly encouraged. It's impossible for God to lie. If God is sitting on the throne of our heart, we shouldn't be able to lie either. 1 John 2, 4, the man who says, I know God but does not do what he commands. You mean right here in verse 8 and 9? Yeah. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as Jesus did. Jesus never cussed. He didn't look women up and down one end to the other lustfully. He never did those sort of things. He never slandered anybody. He never allowed his eyes to fall upon anything that is impure. Satan, on the other hand, is a liar and the father of all lies, Jesus said in John 8, 44. Don't lie. Don't lie to your boss at work. Don't lie to your spouse. Don't lie to anyone about anything. Don't fudge the truth. Don't cheat on your IRS taxes. Oh, I gave $50,000 to the church last year in tithes and offerings, but it was all cash. Really? Don't you think I'd have noticed it? Never happened. Well, Pastor Jim, can't you just lie for me? I mean, being audited by the IRS, couldn't you just tell them that I gave you $50,000 in cash? And uh, No. I'll visit you in jail, though. Don't lie. It couldn't be simpler, and yet we excuse the fact that we do it all the time. Don't lie about anything. Here's what you should do instead. Verse 10, put on the new self. You're the new nature. And it's something you have to keep on doing every day by being in the Word, by being in prayer, by seeking God's face, by surrender afresh every day. It's a part of something. You've got to keep on and keep on doing it. 
Put, keep putting on that new self. The regenerate, the born-again self is distinguished from the old nature, the old self. The old, understand when you came to Christ, He didn't rehabilitate your old nature. He gave you a new one because the old one is corrupt. But you already knew that. Christianity is not a self-help program to make you better. It's a place where you come and die. Your sins nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, but your old nature was nailed to that cross. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Thus, you must do these things because that's our only reasonable response for all that Jesus has done for me. He died. I need to die to the things of this world. I need to die to my sinful, fallen nature. I need to die to the allure and attractions of this world. I don't want my old nature repaired or overhauled or improved. Jesus is doing a supernatural work in, on, and through us. What he says here, it's a perfect picture of taking off some dirty clothes and and putting on some new ones. Put off the old nature and put on some new clothes. Yesterday, Kathy decided that she wanted this new fence that I built her in the front yard. She said, well, could you stain that for me? So I thought, sure, how hard can it be? Depends on how much fence there is. <laughs> so we bought a sprayer. I could spit more than that thing put out. So we wound up having to hand brush the whole thing. And then, uh, and then Kathy went inside. Uh, I'm still struggling on the fence myself. And up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And at 70 years old, your knees don't work like they did when I was your age. Uh, so this up and down about oh, roughly 600,000 times to paint the bottom and the top of the fence. Kathy, I hear this blood-curdling scream like a mass murderer was cutting a child out of her womb. This blood-curdling scream, ah, Jim! So I ran in there thinking to find, you know, 50,000 demons attacking her simultaneously or something. And she said, we have to be at a wedding in 40 minutes. And you're doing it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would have said, I, uh, I, I know, but that would have been a lie. <laughs> so I can't lie. What I had to do was take off my dirty, stained work clothes, take a shower and put on a coat and tie, and take off the old nature, a filthy garment, put on the new nature as one puts on a clean set of clothes. What an object lesson I had in that yesterday. Nothing feels better than a hot shower after you've been sweating out there, staining fence and getting cleaned up, and you put on clean clothes and you go, ah, feels good. Put on the new nature every day. Verse 11, he's going to tell us here in Colossians 3, there is no, in these rules, these responses to the Lord, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In other words, nobody in this room is any better than anybody else. No Christian in Colorado Springs is any better than any other Christian. We are blood-bought, we are a work under construction, and we, we can't be fault-finders. We're to be encouragers and edifiers. But some people get that mixed up with slander or a know-it-all attitude. You want to stay humble. 
You want to stay in the Lord. These barbarians were simply Scythians that had come from southern Russia over the Caucasus Mountains, and they were despised by many people. But what Paul is saying here, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, young or old, Jew or non-Jew. God sees us all exactly the same, and all of these things are to be done by all Christians in all places at all times. So don't see this as a letter written to a church at Colossae. See this as Paul's admonition to you. You need to personalize this entire chapter. This is for you. It's not for the person sitting next to you. Wives, I don't want you elbowing your husband saying, Hey, you're the pastor. Shape up, dude. Husbands, don't need you elbowing your wives. Wear baggy your shirts, woman. Let's take a little personal responsibility and say, Jesus, change me. Make me like you. Let my mind be set in heaven above. May my heart not be attached to anything in this world, but in the things of heaven above. I'm a child of God. I need to keep that perspective about me at all times. Verse 12, therefore... What's it there for? In light of what he just said, as God's chosen people, that's who we are. Israel was chosen in the Old Testament. We are chosen in the New. God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion. This is the new garments you put on, like the suit that I put on yesterday, my peacock tie and my black coat and my white shirt. But on this, the new nature, this is who you really are. Pastor Jim, by vocation, is not a fence painter. So I take off my fence painting clothes so I can live up to my real identity and be a pastor who marries people on some occasions and preaches sermons on others. And on the really good days, get to do all of the above and play guitar in the praise band. A little slice of heaven. Put on. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility. Humility means esteeming others greater than yourselves. Don't be a know-it-all. Don't think that you're God's gift to the church and it's your job to correct everybody else. No, no, no. If you're a senior pastor, you get to do that from time to time as necessary. But most of the time, our job is encouragement to do that which you already know is right to do. You should be known instead, put on gentleness and patience. Did you notice half of that list is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? But on Christ, everything else comes with it. You see, God, this stuff happens to you. You're in his presence. He starts changing you from the inside out. Nobody has to tell you that. You're in the word of God. You're in prayer. You're submitted to him. And change starts to happen. You smile more. You care less about what's on TV. You care more about getting into the word of God, fellowshipping with the saints, going to church and seeking the face of God. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We struggle with forgiveness. And here, it's a participle in verse 13. You have to keep on forgiving. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs, but some of you got memories that are way too good. Don't remember those things. Don't ever bring it up again. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Search it out for yourself, 1 Corinthians 13. 
The premier fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, not knowledge. I don't care how much you know. I don't care how wealthy you are, famous, or important you think you are. I care about are you growing in Christ? Christians bear with each other. Verse 13, forgive grievances that we may have had against one another. We struggle with forgiveness because we struggle with love. God loves us. He forgave us all of our sins. If we don't forgive others, it's because we struggle with love. That's a spiritual problem. Being a word-centered church, dearest, dearest friends, being a word-centered church, we are knowledgeable. But are you loving? Knowledge puffs up, makes for pride. Love edifies, it builds up, it encourages we are a knowledgeable church, we Calvary chapels, word-centered. But it doesn't always follow then that you're loving or kind. While in this world there is so much corruption in our hearts and quarrels will sometimes arise, I think it's our duty to forgive one another, imitating the forgiveness through which we were saved. Let the peace of God Rule in your hearts. Well, that guy's just pushing my buttons. Who told you you had the right to have buttons? Got a chapter and verse for that? Got a love problem. Got a spiritual problem. Let go and let God. Verse 14, and over all of these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's why you should be in the Word of God every day. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish each other with all wisdom, as you sing Songs and spiritual hymns and songs of gratitude in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the God, to God the Father through Him. Love, love and understand this. Love and unity is not the goal. God is. Love and unity is the byproduct of your walk with the Lord. If your walk with the Lord is not tight and intimate and daily, I don't expect love and unity to be present in your life, your marriage, your home, your workplace, or church. Love and unity are not the goal. God's the goal. We don't attempt love and unity. I just want to be more loving. I just got to try harder to be united. It's the fruit of Christ in our hearts as we pursue Him. Pursue Christ. He's the goal. It's my desire to please Him. I've just been given an entire chapter of things that please Him. I want to do it. I hope you do. I can't do it for you. I want to know Christ, the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Paul would write another church in the New Testament. He would tell the Ephesians in the letter that he wrote to them, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's the goal, to know him better. How do you get to know him better? Ta-da! He only wrote one book. 
Been a bestseller since the printing press was invented. No book has ever outsold the Bible, ever, in the history of this world. Read it. Heed it. Do what it says. Follow the good examples and where it points out a picture of a real bozo in his faith. And stay away from that example. Don't go that way. It's real, real simple. Let, verse 15, the peace of Christ rule in your heart and keep on being thankful. Keep on being thankful. And in verse 16, I, I, I loved studying the Greek because sometimes word order is really important. You know what the very emphasis is in the very first sentence? The word of Christ. The word. That's why we're a word-centered church. Without it, we have no anchor. We have no anchor. We just float around on every wind of doctrine. But the word of God is always our anchor. When somebody asks me, well, Pastor Jim, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Well, what's the Word of God say? Well, I don't know. That's why I came to you. So you want me to do your homework. Is that right? How well that work for you in school? Sometimes you've got to do your own homework. Oh, I'll point you in the right direction. I'll help you. I know the Greek and the Hebrew and the history and all, the, all of that jazz. That, that's not the issue. What we've got next and we'll study next week starts in verse 18. Specific applications of these general rules. What, is je what we've just gone over here in chapter 3 is rules for all Christians at all time in all places, regardless of sex or social advantage, money, etc. This applies to every single one of us in this room and everybody in the body of Christ. But then there are specific applications. This is what you wives should do. This is what you husbands should do. This is what you children should do. This is what you fathers should do. This is what you slaves should do. This is what you masters should do as Christians, as born again. So there's specific application, and uh, we'll cover all of that next week. Feel free to read ahead. It's not cheating. But your homework, there will be a test. Your homework is to do your level best before the Lord to put chapter 3 into practice. Simple. Let me just simplify the whole chapter. Seek God. Everything else will turn out just fine. If you don't, nothing else will turn out just fine. And you have my word on that. I will pray that God would deliver your life a holy, chaotic mess until you get all of your priorities right with him. I pray that he would give no rest to your eyes, no sleep to your body, no rest to your weary bones until you come to grips with Jesus. I give you all of me, all that I am and ever hope to be. Use me for your glory, I surrender. Fill me, Lord, with the fruit of your Holy Spirit because I can't manufacture it myself. But I can surrender. I'm here. Let's stand together and close in prayer as the band comes up. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You love us so much. You know what is best for us. You know what will make us happy. You know what will make us a fulfilled people. And it's not the entanglements of this world that bring satisfaction. It's knowing you, standing firm in our faith, being encouraged, growing in the knowledge of your word and of you personally. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to each one of us this week, please. We need you so desperately. 